You can turn over to uh, Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 5. We've been going through this section of, of Matthew. We've worked our way through the Beatitudes, and, and, and we're kind of uh, working out what he said. And um, we come to the fifth chapter of, of Matthew today in verse 27. And I just want to read the text for us. We're, to be honest with you, I'm going to do a little kind of background work on what we've taught so far. And, and we're going to spend a little time in the Old Testament today. But uh, uh, next week, we'll kind of get into our, this text that we're going to read this morning. But uh, it's, it's also good just to kind of refresh our minds and remember where, what Jesus is teaching here. Uh, so you can follow along in verse 27 um, of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Um, that's a, kind of a hard uh, section. You read that and you're going, holy mackerel, what's that mean? And we're going to be getting into that uh, uh, in depth next week. Um, last week we talked about the aspect of murder and we talked about how God is more concerned with what's on the inside of our heart than necessarily what the external is. And uh, Jesus basically has come at a point in time in his ministry where people have seen him do certain miracles. They've seen him do certain things that, um, you know, kind of, they would sit back and go, well, this guy could maybe possibly be the Messiah. We don't know. Um, was this miracle worker the Messiah who would bring in God's kingdom or not? And so there were certain elements in his teaching that might lead one to believe that. Uh, and they also wanted to know, well, what's your kingdom going to look like? If you are the Messiah and you are the king and everything, what's it, you know, what are the standards that you're laying down? And, and Jesus summarized those for us in Matthew, 17, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And we've read those uh, in previous messages. But in that text, he says he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He didn't come to destroy them, but he came to what? Fulfill them, right? In other words, what Jesus was saying to them is, I am the Messiah, and my message, because he quotes in there, um, uh, break any of these commandments and so forth. You can read it for yourself there in verses 17 to 20. He's, what he's saying to them is, I am this Messiah that you're, you're looking for, and my message is the same message, are you ready for this, that Moses gave you. It's not any different. So wait a minute. Because he says there, I will not change it, I will not destroy it, because I came to fulfill it. However, he did clarify one thing. He said, my standards for my kingdom must exceed the standards that you're living by right now. And he's talking to the scribes and he's talking to the Pharisees. So he's looking at the standard by which they're living and he's saying, you know what, you have to exceed that if you're going to be in my kingdom. He required a righteousness beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were the most righteous people in the Jewish society of the day. And so you might ask, well, isn't that kind of demanding more than what they could deliver? Isn't that hard to ask somebody to exceed that righteousness, which they were very righteous in their own eyes? They were the most righteous Jews of the day in the eyes of the people. And so he was saying, no, you've got you to do more than that. You've got to exceed that kind of righteousness. And so it was difficult for the Jews to understand that. They couldn't comprehend that. It was kind of an insult to them. What do you mean? There's somebody more righteous than me? I don't think so. And it didn't make sense to their common sense. And, and who would require a higher righteousness to what we're living to? We're scribes, we're Pharisees. 
And they appeared to everybody in the context of that society to live the law of Moses to the nth degree. And so, for that reason, the question in the minds of the people was, if you believe in the law of Moses, Jesus, how can you require a greater standard than the scribes and the Pharisees who teach us that law? That's what the common people wanted to know. And unfortunately, though the scribes and the Pharisees sat, you might say, in the seat of Moses at the time, claiming to be proponents of of the law of Moses and everything, in reality, what they did, and we talked about this previously, and this is kind of review, they took the law of God, which was given to man through Moses, and they said, well, surely we can't keep all this. This is crazy. So let's make up our own definition of this, and, and we'll keep that. We'll take the, the God standard and we'll kind of bring it down to our everyday living. And so God says, you know, keep the Sabbath, you know, for it's holy. Well, you know, what does that mean? Well, that means you can't carry a stick from here to here. That's what that means. That means you can't, you know, do you know that in the day, I was just listening to Dr. Jeremiah the other day on the TV and he said this and it was amazing to me. And I've heard this before, but I thought, well, I'm going to mention this on Sunday. In the day... On the Sabbath, ladies, if you got up and uh, you went in the mirror and you saw one of those gray hairs, you know those nasty gray hairs, you couldn't pluck it out. I'm not joking. It's written in their oral law. And you couldn't do that because that was considered work. That's the minutia that they got down to. They took the standard of God and they lowered it down to this thing. And they said, as long as you do these things, well, then you have a righteousness that God is going to accept. But they weren't keeping the law as God originally intended it to be kept. And so Jesus came along and he had this discussion with them and he said, you know what, your standard is here. And you think because you're doing all this external stuff... That's, God's going to accept that. Well, I've got, I got, I got a news for you. You're going to have to exceed that standard. That's not good enough for God. And so in doing that, Jesus gives his listeners several illustrations in here, one about murder, one about adultery. He goes on divorce, oaths, different things. And, and we're going to be looking at those in the coming weeks. But he does that to show how far the religious people of the day are falling short in their righteousness. Because in every aspect of the law, they were falling short. Even though they were keeping it, trying to keep it to the nth degree externally. There was something more that Jesus wanted to get across to them. In effect, what he was doing is he was destroying this system that they built of self-righteousness. And they built their own little religious system. And they forgot that in the beginning, God created in his image man. And see, what man tends to do, unfortunately, is it takes whatever God does and it brings it down a, a couple standards. It just, we, that's what we do. And so when God says, well, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to be saved from your sins, if you want your sins forgiven, you have to come through the cross. Well, what's man do? Well, that seems kind of narrow-minded, so let's just open that up a little bit. We'll paint this with a broad, a broad brush. And so you have all this relativistic, postmodern thought that goes into our society today, and everything's relative, there's no truth, and all this other stuff. That's what man does. This is what's required, but this is what we're going to do. And we're okay with that. And if you don't believe me, just ask somebody... You know, if you die today and you stand before the Lord, what do you think is going to happen? I think you get a thumbs up or a thumbs down. (laughs) And their typical answer is not one that's based on biblical truth. The typical person will say, well, I'm hoping, you know, somehow, you know, God will let me into heaven. I just hope that's going to, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, help out, volunteer here, volunteer there, and do these things. And, you know, hopefully, I mean, he'll see those good works. And, And that's the typical answer you'll get. And it falls into the realm of what, I, what I'm going to do in life is going to justify me before a holy God one day. And brothers and sisters, that's just not true. What we do could never, ever justify us before a holy God one day. 
So man invents this kind of God that he wants. And he kind of turns his back on the true God. And the reason they do that is they look at God's standard and they say, what? That's impossible. You expect me to keep that? That's impossible. And that's where the aspect of of kind of putting down their self-righteousness comes in. That's where God wants us. I'm so delighted when I'm sharing the Lord with somebody and finally they say, well, you know, you're, you're saying all this stuff that God, you know, if we've ever lied, we've committed a sin and we're doomed to hell if we've ever thought a bad thought or if we've ever taken something that's not ours, you know, irrespective of its value, then we're condemned to hell? Well, who hasn't done that? We've all done that. What's he expect us to be perfect? And I say, you know what? That's exactly the point. God demands perfection when it comes to righteousness. And you know what? We don't have any. We don't have any perfect righteousness of our own. See, that's why when they're at that point, then you can say, well, you know, God doesn't leave you hanging there. He doesn't dangle you over the fires of hell and say, yeah, have fun. He says, that's why I've had to provide a savior. That's why I've had to provide salvation. But salvation and a savior is only for those who what? realize they need to be saved. That they're on their way to condemnation and hell. So, hey, i got to get away out of this. And so, when you come to this passage in Matthew 5, it's important to understand that they took this and they lowered it down to the point where basically they had the view of, hey, you know what? Physically, I am not committing adultery with my neighbor's wife. I'm not having sexual relationship with another woman outside of me. I'm not doing the adultery thing. Physically, this is not what I'm doing. And they felt pretty good about that. They thought they'd go right into the kingdom because they didn't, do certain things. I never murdered anybody. I never committed adultery, the physical act. And we've all been there. We've all looked at our hearts. We've all looked at our lives. We try to live lives that are honoring to God. And eventually we come to a point where we say, you know what, I'm not that bad. (laughs) I've never actually gone out and committed adultery with somebody who's not my wife, you know, and, and, and had sexual relationships with somebody who's not my wife committing the act of adultery. I've never done that. I mean, I've known people that do that, and they're, they're bad. <laughs> they're just bad people. But I've never done that. And we fall into the same, same thing that the scribes and Pharisees fall into. Last week, we talked about anger. I was sharing with the elders this week at our meeting. I said, God has a sense of humor. You teach on anger on Sunday. What happens to you on Monday? You get angry. It's weird how that works. You know, God's just kind of saying, hey, you know what? I'm I'm just doing, allowing this to happen just to kind of make sure that you understand that, you know, just because you haven't had an argument with your wife in a couple weeks doesn't mean that it's not around the corner. And there's not a day that you don't have to wake up, Steve, and cry out to me for my mercy and my grace to get you through each day without going down that road. Because it's not just about having an argument. It's about what's going on in the heart. And the same thing here. And what they were saying was, you know what? We've never done this physically. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, if you've even looked at a woman to lust after her, you've not, you haven't done anything physically. You just saw her. And your little mind started to think thoughts that were not honoring to God. Nor to her, nor to yourself. What Jesus says is, you know what? You've already done it in your heart. It's not about the physical act. It's about what's going on in our hearts. If we could get this into our thinking, it would revolutionize the church. Because so many of us, we just have our little file of things that we do and we don't do because we're good little Christians. And, but what's our hearts like? <laughs> if we could take an x-ray machine and put our hearts up on the screen... What would we see? Because that's what God sees. And he says, if you've ever even lusted after a woman, 
in your heart, that's enough to damn you to hell forever. Whoa. That's what he's telling these self-righteous, pious scribes and Pharisees of the day. And see, they took the standard of God and they lowered it down so that they would feel better about themselves. It's kind of like the person that comes to church every time the doors are open and they read their Bible every day and they do all this stuff. But you know what? In the quietness of their own heart, they know that they may have some besetting sin, they have something going on that's not honoring to the Lord. God says, this, this other stuff you're doing does not impress me. Don't think that it works. You come to church, you earn brownie points, and then when you go out and sin, you just kind of, you know, you use up those brownie points, and then you got to go. It doesn't work that way. Because we don't live a faith that's based on works. God's looking at our heart. What's the attitude of our heart? And so when we look at that kind of a system, this external thing, well, that has the possibility of, of building us up, building our egos up. Yeah, you know, I've been to church man, 30 times this past month. You know, I've, I've shared the Lord with... And all these things may be good things, but see, they work into the pride of our life. And pretty soon we're bragging about things that we're doing for the Lord. And God is saying, I'm sorry, I can't accept that. That doesn't fly with me. Because you're doing it for the wrong motivation. What's motivating you to do the things that you do? Is it to be seen by man? Or or is it to serve God? You know, we had a little service this last week for one of Mary's relatives that had passed away in another state. And her children asked if we could do this. And I said, sure. So we had it over in the fellowship hall. And I was kind of nervous about it because I didn't I didn't know the individual who had passed away at all. And I didn't know uh, his son who kind of requested to have this memorial service. And I'm thinking, oh, how do I do this? What do I do? You know, um, There wasn't really a big agenda. I think there was eight people there I had at the fellowship hall. I didn't know if this person was a Christian or not. I didn't know any of that stuff. And part of me, at the very beginning... Wanted to go, why do I have to do this? I I just don't feel comfortable doing this. I don't know these people. There's going to be expectations and all this stuff. And I started feeling all these feelings. And it's like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, why are you doing this? If you're just doing this because Mary asked you to do it, you got it all wrong. And he began to show me, you know what? You have an opportunity to share my truth with some people who are hurting at a very, you know, opportune time in their life. And you're worrying about how you're going to come across or what's going to happen and all, all these details or whatever. He's saying, don't worry about it. Just listen to what I want you to do. You know, and it wasn't so much you know, all these external things. It was God was working on my heart. And we had a wonderful time together. I learned a lot about Mary's extended family and just, you know, different things. And and it it was a good time. But see, they had it all wrong. They, were, they weren't looking at their heart. They were just doing things to do them. And sometimes we can fall into that same, that exact same routine, and that's what it becomes. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever your group meets, after, you know, we, we just go and just do the same thing. We need to stop and say, God, you know what? Do something fresh in my life. Show me something fresh about myself, good or bad. Um, you know, help me in, in areas that, you know, I've kind of just given up, saying, uh, you know what, this is, this is crazy. I'm always going to be this way, and this is just the way it's going to be. No, that's not the truth. God wants to do a work in us. And see, sometimes we have to come to that point of desperation before God, and that's where he wanted them to be. But they were so filled with their self-righteousness, they couldn't get there. Because they're looking at their little list of things that they did that day, thinking, we didn't do this, we didn't do that. And so, you know, they're, they're just feeling all good about themselves. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not about what you did. And he had to lift that standard back 
Because throughout this text, in verses 27 and 28, and then even down throughout the whole text, you constantly hear Jesus say, you have heard, and he goes on, but he says, but I say. There's a big contrast there. And sometimes we hear things, and we need to go back and say, what does God's word say? Because that's the only basis upon which we should build anything. And it really pointed to their misunderstanding about God's law. God had given his law to them. They, they took it and they mixed it all up into this legalistic mishmash that they had and just, just kind of regurgitated it on this externally based performance. And Jesus had to explain to them that's not what it's about. And I mean, you know, he's saying to them, you've heard from the rabbis who interpreted the law, but I'm telling you the truth. Because they weren't going by the law of God. They were going by somebody's interpretation of it, as we talked about before. And so these teachers basically took the, the, the law and they reduced it down to a standard that was easy to keep so they could keep it and feel better about themselves. And what the text here this morning is, he says, hey, you know, they told you not to commit adultery. And then you're okay. You don't commit the act, you're okay. But I'm telling you something more. What he's telling him is you've merely invented a system that you can live up to and then you convince yourself that you're righteous. And sometimes, unfortunately, we have a tendency to do that in our own lives. See, the self-righteous people here who are listening to Jesus teach could avoid committing the act of adultery, obviously, but they couldn't do anything about their secret life. See, they, their heart raged with lust, even though they weren't committing the act of adultery. And they missed the whole point of the Old Testament. And a lot of times we miss the whole point. And God said in Exodus twenty fourteen, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we, we have a tendency to believe that when God gave those precepts, those laws in the Old Testament, he was merely talking about that deed itself. That's all. It was just a bunch of do's and don'ts that God gave mankind. And he wants them to understand that it's so much more than that. And I think as Christians, we need to understand that the Old Testament law is so much more than a list of, of stuff that was written on stone tablets. Now, we know, if we know anything about our Bible and about history, that the basic revelation of God's message, it came down to man, and it came through who? It came through Moses, right? And that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, basically are, are the core of the Old Testament. Now, you get to the prophets and the writings and, 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 and the other writings back there. Basically, they're just explanations of what Moses wrote what the first five books are about. They're commentaries on the first giving of the law itself. And I think sometimes, you know, when we read through the prophets, you find a lot of prophets uh, kind of condemning people because they failed to keep the law of Moses. And so in, in the first five books, the Pentateuch, that sets the, the pace, that sets the foundation. And you might even say that really gives the gospel of God as it was given through Moses. That's what it was about. The rest of the Old Testament elaborates on the law of God. So God revealed his basic requirements through Moses. And he elaborated on them in the, in the prophets and the writings and the historical books and everything else. And then they came to a full consummation when Christ came who came not to change anything. Jesus Christ didn't come in and with a big red marker go, oh, the law, exit out. But it says he came to what? Fulfill it. So it came to a full consummation in Christ. He didn't change anything, but he wanted to clear up the issue that the law of Moses hadn't changed at all. As a matter of fact, you know, he even says, you know, you can't even change one jot, one tittle. You, you don't even change the smallest little marking of this. This is inspired from God himself. 
Now, if you turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and this is kind of foundational to understanding what Jesus is really teaching. And just you can turn back to the beginning of the book because we're going to kind of highlight some things throughout the book. The fifth of the, the last of the five books that Moses received, and it's kind of a summary of the law of God. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Some people believe it's the most important book in the Old Testament. Um, it was kind of a, a, a kind of re-giving of the law itself. Um, in Greek, the name Deuteronomy actually means second law. It was given by God to Israel as a nation as they're about to enter and take possession of a land that he had promised to them. So it it kind of serves as a a summarization, you might say, of all the standards of living for God's kingdom. That's what it is. And the, 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 the whole central theme of the book is supported by the fact that the Ten Commandments are repeated in the fifth chapter. And when... Jesus and the New Testament writers quoted this book. They quoted it more than any other book from the Old Testament. So it's a critical book because it summarizes the entire Old Testament. And it, it, it kind of essentially, you know, it, it follows its, its comments up with the, the Pentateuch of all of which the, the Deuteronomy is the key book of that. Okay? You say, well, wasn't the, 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 the law given in Exodus? We're going to go there. But you have to understand what Deuteronomy is about, I think, first. And to give you kind of a summary of this in Deuteronomy, it it first covers a relationship of love. It covers a relationship of love. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and what? With all your strength. Okay, that principle, which is the principle of the whole Bible, basically, is complemented by a, a secondary principle, which is found in Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor, what? As yourself. We've all heard that. We all know that. Jesus quoted both of those in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 22. So the Old Testament is not building a relationship on law but it's building a relationship that's totally built on love, if you understand it properly. And so many people don't get this. They think that the Old Testament economy was this economy of the law. It isn't. It's an economy of love. You can see God's love throughout the Old Testament, especially throughout the law. It's a relationship that God is after. It's not... He didn't give them all these laws and say, okay, now if you keep all these, I'll love you more. That's not what the law is about. See, love is the key to a relationship with God. It's not about the law. And we can see this throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy, where God continually says, I want you to love me. I want you to love me. I want a wholehearted committed from you, commitment from you. I want true devotion from you. Over and over again, you just hear it crying out, I want you to love me. That's what God is saying. And there's a response to that love. Through Deuteronomy, Moses says to Israel over and over and over again, as they prepare to enter the land, you must love the Lord, because it's a relationship of love that God has always sought with man. Before God ever gave the law to Israel in the form of the Ten Commandments and all the other statutes that go along with it and the regulation, what did he do? He established a relationship with them. He just didn't say, here, here's the law. If you keep this, you know, maybe I'll love you. Then I'll have a relationship with you. He didn't do that. 
He established a relationship first. He first loved Israel. How, how do we know that? Well, he delivered them out of Egypt. It was only after establishing a loving relationship with them and accomplishing that redemption from Egypt that he gave them the law. He first loved Israel. Then he gave them the law. So you have to understand the law was not the cause of the relationship. It was the result of it. In other words, God first freed Israel from Egypt, made them his people. That's what the word of God says. And after that, he said, because I love you so much and I got this relationship with you, guess what? I'm going I'm to give you some basic guidelines on how to live. Hopefully when your son or your daughter grows up and goes away to college, you don't just open the door and say, see you later. Hasta la vista. You know, you don't do that. Hopefully throughout your high school years, you're kind of pruning them. You're getting them ready for that. You're grooming them for that. You're, you're sharing with them insights and input that you've learned in life so that when that day comes and they leave your house to go away and live by themselves and a bunch of other kids their same age in a dormitory and you're not there, that they're going to make the proper decisions. You don't just give them the boot and say, later. That wouldn't show a relationship of love. Well, it's the same thing with God. He had a relationship with Israel. He wanted them to be successful in living for him, so he gave them, what? The law. To tell them how to live. And the New Testament confirms the words of Moses, whether it's Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, John, whoever is speaking. In John, uh, 1 John 4.19, we see this, that we love him. Why do we love him? Why do we love God? Because he what? He first loved us. See, we're not the initiator in this process. God is. And when we get it backwards, all mayhem breaks loose. God loved Israel. That's how it all began. And we were first brought into a relationship of love with God, and then we had a response of obedience to his law. See, and and what I'm trying to get across is that it's the attitude that God has always been after. He's not giving the law just to sit up in heaven and look down and say, well, this should be fun to see how they try to keep this. (laughs) That's not his attitude. He's trying to show them, hey, if you you strive to live by this, it's going to help you. But I'm more concerned with the attitude that's in your heart. It's not that God just wanted a bunch of external laws for them to live by. He wanted them to be self-motivated to love him and him alone. See, that's why Jesus is telling them back in Matthew 5, it's not the issue of whether you committed murder or you didn't commit the act of murder. It's not the issue of whether you committed adultery physically or not. That's not the issue. The issue is what's going on in your heart. That's what Jesus wants to convey to them. And it's always been that way from day one. God is concerned about the internal attitude of our heart. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And it's nothing unique in the New Testament. It's always been this way. Look at verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 to 13. It says, And now Israel... What does the Lord God require of you? What does he require of you? Well, he goes on to tell us. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to what? To love him, and to serve the Lord your God with, here it comes, all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I have commanded you today for your good. (laughs) See, that's no different than what the New Testament teaches. When it says that if you profess to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't keep his commandments, something's fishy here. 
1 John 2, 4. See, the love comes first, then the obedience factor. See, and sometimes we get that wrong. We go out and we try to evangelize people, and we try to say, well, you know, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that. No, you don't. They have to get saved. They have to repent. They have to be reborn. Then you can give them a list of things they need to do. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about obeying if you don't know Christ. That's not going to do any good. Love comes first, then obedience. Look down at verse uh, Deuteronomy um, 10, 19. It even sets forth a different dimension of this. Not only does God want us to love him, but look at what he says in, in Deuteronomy 10, 19. He says, therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay? And and he kind of wants them to understand that they need to fear God. He goes on to say that. He says, you shall fear the Lord, your God. Him shall you serve. To him you shall cleave. All the way down to, 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 to verse 20. You shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge and his statutes and his ordinances and his commandments always. What came first? Love. See, it's it's out of God's love for us that we kind of reciprocate back to him obedience. And it was the same way in the Old Testament. That's why in in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your what? Heart. It wasn't just the physical act of circumcision. It had a deeper meaning. God has always sought the attitude of our hearts. He's never been satisfied ever with somebody coming just with an external response. An external keeping of the law. And that's evident from the the, the main theme of the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy. And basically, they're summarized in one statement. Love God and love your neighbor. (laughs) If you read through them, that's what they say over and over again. And that's what God requires of us. And that's exactly what Jesus taught. That's exactly what the epistles teach in the New Testament. And when you get into Deuteronomy 12, chapters 12 through 25... Moses begins to interpret and apply those two basic principles about loving God and loving your neighbor in every daily situation possible almost. Giving them various different statutes and different things. But it all comes down to he's kind of applying those two basic principles. Love Love God and love your neighbor. And then when he comes to chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, he gets everybody together for a service of dedication where the people are to confess their sins and rededicate their lives as an affirmation of their love for God. And it was, it was a time for their hearts to be committed to the Lord and a time of obviously great worship and praise. And he says in verse 16 of, uh, or verse 16 of chapter 26, This day the Lord your God has commanded you to do these statutes and ordinance, thou shalt therefore keep and do them with what? With all your heart and with all your soul. See, if the heart wasn't important, if God was just interested in us performing a bunch of external things, he wouldn't include that. But it's important that we understand that that's what he said. Deuteronomy 26, 16. And then in in chapter 27, he goes on, Moses tells Joshua, hey, I'm not going to make it to the promised land because I kind of messed some things up. I forfeited that privilege. But when you get there, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to renew this same commitment that you will love the Lord your God and that you'll love each other. And then when you get to chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, he says, you know what? This is a choice you have to make. You can choose not to love the Lord your God and not to, to, not to love your neighbor, and there's going to be a consequence. And in Deuteronomy 28, he says to them, now you have two choices. You can be blessed, or you can be what? You can be cursed. It's up to you. And so he goes through the blessings in verses 3 to 13 of chapter 28, and then he goes through the curses throughout the rest of the chapter. And what he's saying here, basically, 
is when you get into the land, if you choose to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will be blessed. That's what, that's what this is saying. But he says, if you choose not to love your Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you don't choose to love your neighbor as yourself, you will be cursed. It's pretty basic. And then when you get to chapters 29 and 30 of Deuteronomy, he appeals to the people to make a decision, what are you going to do? Which one is it going to be? And he says in 30, beginning in verse 11, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, he says, For this commandment which I commanded you this day is not hidden from you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who shall go up to heaven and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear and do it? And then he says this, but the word is very near unto you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart that you may do it. In other words, what he's communicating to them is, you know what? You have a choice to make. And the information has been more than sufficient for you to make this wise decision. And if you choose to bless, you choose the the, the decision of blessing for loving God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Or, you know what? If you don't want to go that way, then you can choose cursing. Go ahead. He's just stating the facts. But don't complain about it that you didn't get the information because I just gave it to you. That's what he's saying. And he goes on in verses 15 there. He says, See, I've set before you this day life and good, death and evil, and this I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God shall uh, bless thee in the land into which you're going to go and possess it. But if your heart turn away, so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall surely perish, and that you shall not prolong your days on the land, upon the land to which you'll uh, pass over the Jordan to go and possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choosing life, that, that, that thou and thy seed may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cleave unto him, for he is life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore unto uh, the, the fathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to give to them. See, that's the sum of the whole Old Testament. And it sums up with this. Love God. Love God with your whole heart. God has always been interested, beloved, in a relationship, a heart relation, nothing more. He didn't approve of anyone in the Old Testament who just mechanically kept Ten Commandments because it wasn't about that. It didn't fulfill the plan of God. The Ten Commandments were only given to regulate a relationship which was based on love. And if the love relationship wasn't there, the regulation, keeping the regulation, didn't mean anything. That's his point. And that's really the point of Jesus. Back to Matthew. That's the point of him. What he's saying. God's mainly concerned with our heart. He's not so much concerned with what's going on all around us. The external things that we do and we perform, thinking that if we perform more, God will love us more. It doesn't work that way. And see, the Pharisees looked at their externals, all their behaviors, and they were satisfied. And they said, hey, we're pretty good. We're looking pretty good. We don't kill anybody. We don't, you know, we don't sleep with a neighbor's wife. Blah, blah, blah. And they go on and on. And they list all these things. And they miss the entire point of what God was trying to communicate to them. And so Jesus had to say, you know what? You heard this, but let me tell you the real deal. Here's what's really going on here. You're preoccupied with the outside, but God is concerned with the inside. And it's a relationship of love that God wants. And the law only regulates that relationship. Just as the standard of the New Testament regulate the new covenant relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's very clear. And so when you come to Matthew 22, 34 to 40, you find the Lord kind of saying the same thing that comes out of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love the neighbor as yourself. 
says, I don't care about what functions you're performing, all this other stuff. If you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor, you miss the point. That's why Jesus could say to the rich young ruler, hey, you know what? It's great that you kept all this stuff, but you know what? Go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor because I see what's in your heart. You're playing a game here. You're playing a shell game with me. You think you can fool me? I know what you're doing. See, he's not merely interested in external behavior. And what he pointed out with the rich young ruler was that was basically hypocritical. So you say, what's the the purpose of God having this standard? You're saying he has this standard that's so high that nobody, nobody could keep it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's why the, the scribes and Pharisees looked at that and they looked at the whole standard law and said, you know, we can't do this. Let's, let's come up with something we can do. <laughs> and then we'll feel good about ourselves. See, because when they couldn't keep it, what happened? They experienced the guilt of what? Sin. When we don't obey God, we sin. And when we sin, there should be guilt. God didn't leave you there in that guilty, sinful state. Just like he didn't leave them there in that guilty, sinful state. Stop and think about it. He gave them the law. There were times when they couldn't keep the law, right? What did he say? Ah, too bad. You're just going to have to feel guilty. Nope. That's it. No. God had mercy on them. God had grace on them. That's why he gave them the sacrificial system. That's why he told them. You know what? When you don't keep the law of God, I want you to be guilty as a result of that. And when you feel guilty, I'm going to provide an avenue where you can come to me and, and, and that guilt will be dealt with. And that's why they had, in the Old Testament, you, over and over again, you see them sacrificing this, sacrificing that. What do you think? God's just a bloodthirsty monster? I mean, that's not what it was about. It was about allowing them an avenue to confess their sin and to prove the genuineness of their confession through a sacrifice. See, the sacrificial system, when they did this, it didn't make them right with God. That's not what it did. It simply pointed out that only God could make them right with him. It pointed out they needed a sacrifice because of their inability to keep God's standard regarding this relationship of love. And when they couldn't fulfill that standard which was required by God, they became guilty and they became convicted of their sin. But in order to deal with the guilt, God provided this way of sacrificing and they'd sacrifice all sorts of things. And of itself, it never gave any lasting peace and relief from guilt. But the system did point to the fact that someday, someplace, some way, there had to be an ultimate sacrifice that could do away with sin once and for all. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. He's the provision that God provided. See, the whole sacrificial system pointed to one individual, to Jesus Christ. Moses presented a standard of a loving relationship with a man in his evil heart. He couldn't fulfill it. But even making a sacrifice out of contrition, it was, it was kind of futile in a way because the process never, in, never ended and it, it never fully accomplished complete forgiveness. That's not why it was there. It pointed to Jesus Christ, to the final sacrifice, to the kind of the, the apex of everything that was going to go on that Moses taught. It all comes together. That's why Jesus says, I have come to fulfill them all, not to do away with it. This whole sequence points to the Savior because he's the only one who could deal with man on the inside. He's the only one that can change someone's heart The Old Testament sacrifice system served to frustrate man, 
to show him his desperation, to show him that he couldn't save himself no matter what he did. And if the heart relationship wasn't right, he wasn't right. But by the time you get to Jesus' day, the Jews had kind of taken that standard and they lowered it and, and they disregarded all this necessity of having a right heart relationship. So they were just purely focused on the external. And as a result, they could do the external, so they felt pretty good about themselves. So they never, ever felt guilt and sin. They never felt that feeling because they thought they were above that. In Mark 12, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. See, that standard somehow slipped from their memory, and they'd done away with it. They only kept the parts that they could keep, all the external stuff. And you say, okay, well, where does the Ten Commandments fit in all this? Where does the Mosaic Law fit into all this then anyway? I believe the Ten Commandments, basically, are just a definition of that love relationship that we have with God. That's what they are. And, and we've all heard, you know, I heard the Ten Commandments are the law, and, and, you know, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. I don't believe that. I believe there's simply a way to regulate the expression of love that God wants us to have for him. First of all, it's because redemption preceded the Ten Commandments. They weren't saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. God had already set his love upon them before he even gave them the Ten Commandments. He already called them out of Egypt. And he redeemed them. And he ordained them as God's people. And then he said, now that you're mine, here are some guidelines, some laws to live by. He gave them a code of ethics. Once the relationship was established, that was the purpose of it. The principles of behavior were kind of laid out there. But never forget the fact that redemption preceded the law. They weren't saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament. Because God is always concerned about what? He's concerned about the heart. He's concerned about having a relationship with people. And the relationship preceded the law and the, and, and the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments. The law did not establish the covenant. Love established the covenant with God. The law merely regulated the behavior within that covenant. And I think it's an important point that we understand that. When you look at the Ten Commandments quickly in Exodus 20, just go ahead and turn over there, Exodus 20. We're just going to go through these like in light speed because most of us are familiar with them. But did you know the first four commandments regulate and, and relate to our love for God? Basically, and the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments relate to our love for our neighbor. Kind of interesting because it comes down to that. It comes down to an attitude, hard attitude, a love relationship. That's what it's all about. It's not just a bunch of dictates that, that God set out for us. So look at the ones that affect our relationship with God. First of all, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall love no other gods before me. All right? Love is loyal. He demands a loyal love. Um, you know, if, if, if you go home and you tell your wife, gee, I really love you, honey, but Thursday night I'm going out with Sally across the street. What kind of love is that? Okay, that's not going to be a kind of love that any wife puts up with. Okay, that's not going to work because it's not a loyal love. Loving God loyally means worshiping Him alone. Worshiping Him alone. I don't worship the Lord just because I'm trying to fulfill some legal obligation. I'm doing it out of love. Secondly, love is faithful. In verses 4 to 6, he says there, uh, you shall make unto thee... Uh, you, you shall not make unto thee any carved image. And he goes on and he explains what that means. He's a jealous God. All right? Again, it's love. Once again, it comes down to that. At the end there, he says, showing mercy unto thousands of them that what? Love me and keep my commandments. The point is that love will be faithful. Love will be faithful. Love is loyal. Love extends and that loyalty extends into the future, and, and, that, and then it becomes faithfulness. If we love our Lord with all our soul, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, then we're going to love only Him, and we're going to love Him faithfully. Verse 7, Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Love is reverent. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, why would you curse His name? 
Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that because you revere him. Verses 8 through 11, he says, love is set apart. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. See, if, if you love somebody, you're totally set apart to that person. You know, if you're dating days when you were dating somebody and you, you had that relationship of love with that person, eventually, hopefully, you came to a point where you said, you know what, I want to make you, this, this relationship with you, totally... Uh, set apart from any other relationship I have. I, wanna, I want you to be my wife or I want you to be my husband. You know, if we say, hey, you know, I love the Lord like God, God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, all this stuff, and yet, you know what? I, I can't seem to find any time for you at all, let alone give a whole day to you. That's just ridiculous. Love separates itself totally to its object. See, that's love. Ten Commandments isn't just some legal code of external things. It's a way to define this love relationship that we have with God. And then, beginning in verse 12, he begins to talk about our relationship with others. Love is respectful. First of all, with your, with your father and mother. All right? Honor your father and mother. I mean, when you come into this world, who are your first neighbors? <laughs> Basically, your mom and dad, okay? They're the first people you have contact with. And so he's saying, that demands respect. Love isn't lawless and disorderly, but it's always respectful. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Love is humane. If you love somebody, are you going to kill them? I don't think so. If you love your neighbor, you won't, because in in Romans 13.10, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Love is pure. You know, that relationship, that marital relationship is to be kept in purity. It's not to be defiled. Verse 15, love is unselfish. You shall not steal. (laughs) If you love somebody, are you going to steal something they have? Hopefully not. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Love is truthful. I mean, can can you see that these are basic things? There's not a whole lot more to these. It's a basically way, a way that God is saying, hey, I love you. I have a relationship based on love with you. Now I want to share with you some insights, some, some principles on how to live in an effective manner. Verse 17, should not cover your, your neighbor's house or anything else for that matter. Love is content. See, when you really love somebody, you know, maybe you have a, 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 somebody that you really love and, and you know, they, they begin to be successful. You know, you don't look at them and go, gee, hope they fail. I wish I had what they had. You know, you know that's not the kind of love relationship you have with them. So the point of the Ten Commandments are merely a regulation of love, of a relationship with God. And once God established that relationship with his people, the law provided a way to define how that love worked, both toward God and toward each other. The whole law is to love God and to love your neighbor. It's all, it's all wrapped up in that. And so, you know, when we, we come to these sections of Matthew when he's talking about thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. There's much more deeper meaning than just the physical act of those things. Jesus is trying to penetrate their hearts. He's trying to say, you know what, it's what, what matters is what goes on in your heart. And he revealed really their superficial approach to the law. And sometimes we have that same approach. We all deal with sin. We can't keep God's law. And I'm not saying that's how we say it. We're not saved that way. We're saved by God's grace and his grace alone. We can't love people like that all the time. I don't know, maybe, I know I can't. You know, I, I can't even love God like that all the time. None of us can. See, and that's what, what, where God wants us. He points that out and he says, hey, you know what? You're probably going to fail in this area because you're not perfect like my son. Hello? And so you're going to have sin. You're going to have an issue where there's disobedience involved. Well, what happens? Well, I've made a provision. 
Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them who are sanctified. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said he is the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. See, Jesus did on the cross what bulls and goats could never do. Take away someone's sin. See, that's why he died on a cross. If all that was accomplished through a goat or a bull, why would Jesus come and die on a cross? It doesn't make any sense. Judgment was finally rendered at the cross. He paid the final penalty with his own life. And it's interesting to me that in 70 AD, when the Romans came into the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, what did they do? They wiped out their sacrificial system. which really symbolically ended when the the, the veil was rent in half when Jesus died. Do you remember that? That was saying, hey, this is open to all who come through Christ. It's not just some closed little section now. And since that time, there's never been a sacrificial system in Israel. Why is that? Do you ever ask yourself that? Because the Messiah has come. It's, It's all wrapped up in Christ. Because the one that the sacrificial system pointed to has arrived. And he made his sacrifice on Calvary. And that was the ultimate sacrifice that needed to be made. You say, well, then how was somebody in the Old Testament saved? In the Old Testament, how were they saved? See, sometimes, you know, we get a little mixed up. You have to stop and you have to think of, of a couple things. We live in a different time zone. We live in a different time era, all that stuff, okay, than what they lived in. How are we saved? Where do we look to be saved? Right? We look back to Christ's sacrifice. We say, hey, we got guilt for sin. Something needs to be done. I can't pay for this. What happens? Well, yeah, Jesus died for me. We look back. Well, it's no different, really. They were in the same state. They were saying, what do we do? We got this guilt, we got this sin, okay, we can do this dove thing or, you know, chop a goat off a head or, or a head off a goat or whatever, but th- that still doesn't, oh, we're looking ahead to something. God is promising us salvation through a Messiah one day. See, Christ's death went forward to us and it goes backward to them. Think of it that way. That they believed God when they lived, looking forward to the fact that God would take away their sin by his power, that they maybe not understood all the things that we understand, and realizing that they couldn't be righteous on their own, then they would be saved through the sacrifice of Christ, even though he had not yet been offered. Interesting. See, we're on this end of the sacrifice of Christ Though he died 2,000 years ago, his sacrifice is applied to us today because we believe in him, we accept him. And we have to remember that, you know, they, they just look forward to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul sums it all up. He says, For he, God, has made Christ, made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, we couldn't be righteous because we're sinful. God had to make us righteous through Christ. That's why it's so important that we understand that this whole Christian thing is not just wrapped up in a bunch of things that we do and you know, keeping schedules and going to church here and going to church that. It's about what's going on in your heart. Can you clearly, as you sit here today, say, you know what, I have yielded my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you haven't, if you've never gone through that process of realizing that there's no goodness in me, there's no self-righteousness in me, and I need the righteousness of Christ because that's what he laid out for us here. And he's God and he can lay the plan out, I guess. There's no back door. There's no escape hatch. Either you come through Christ or you go to hell. It's, It's very basic. And he pleads with you. He loves you so much. He wants that love relationship with you. He's not interested in what you do, what you don't do. He's interested in where is your heart? Have you come to Christ? 
Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, in, in, in Luke 16, 15, you said to the Pharisees who were so proud in their own heart, you are they who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, we have to remember that it's an abomination to keep an external law without a heart relationship because God knows our hearts. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we seek to worship you in spirit and truth, I pray that as we better understand your law, the purpose, why it was given, and it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's, it's, it's about regulating our relationship with you and with our neighbor. And it's about what's going on in our hearts, more importantly. Lord, I pray that as we lay this foundation, as we get into these other texts, Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to have that heart change, I pray that you would move, that you would work even now, that you would call them unto yourself. Lord, it's not something that somebody can do for them. It's something that they have to do on their own. They have to bow their own knee. They have to swallow their pride and admit a need of a Savior. And God, I pray that you would do that work even now. Pray you dismiss us with, our, with your blessing. And, and Lord, uh, just give us a good day. And I pray that we'd have uh, good fellowship with each other as well. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a...